Hi everyone, my name is Clayton Keenan. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ Community Church. And this weekend we're starting an eight-week teaching series called Elephants, The Questions We Can't Ignore. The title for the series comes from the famous idiom, The Elephant in the Room. Fun fact, the phrase, the elephant in the room, comes from a fable written in 1814 by Ivan Andreevich Krylov. It's called The Inquisitive Man. Let me read it to you. An inquisitive man was one day met by a friend who cordially hailed him. Good morning, my good fellow, and where do you come from? From the Museum of Natural History, where I've just spent three hours. I saw everything there was to see and examined it carefully. It was all so astonishing that honestly, I'm not clever enough to describe the half of it. Nature is certainly wonderful in a rich variety. There are more birds and beasts than I ever dreamed of, not to mention the butterflies, dragonflies, and beetles, some green as emerald and others red as coral. And there were tiny little gnats too. Why really, some of them are smaller than the head of a pin. And of course you saw the elephant. What'd you think of him? I'll wager it felt as though you were looking at a mountain. Elephant? Are you quite sure that they have an elephant? Quite sure. Well, old man, don't tell anybody, but the fact is, I didn't notice the elephant. You ever miss the elephant in the room? We get so caught up in the little things of life that we don't even ask the big important questions. For some people, as they consider the claims of Jesus, there's some glaring questions that just have to be answered. And sometimes it feels like Christ followers are just looking the other way because they're just too difficult. Here at Christ Community Church, we take those questions really seriously. For the next eight weeks, we're gonna be looking at a different difficult question and looking right at the elephants in the room when it comes to Christianity. To kick us off, we've got our first guest speaker, Scott Sauls. Scott is a pastor and church planner in Nashville, Tennessee. He's the senior minister of Christ Presbyterian Church. He's also the author of two excellent books that I'd highly recommend, Jesus Outside the Lines and Befriend. Let's give Scott a warm Christ Community welcome as he comes up onto the stage. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you. Uh, thanks to, to Clayton and also to the Christ Community team for welcoming me. Welcoming me. It's always great to see what God is up to in other cities. It's been a, a few years since I've been to Chicago area, so it's great to be with you. Thanks for the welcome. Uh, also want to say hello to the other campuses. I'm sorry that I don't get to be with you uh, live today, but I uh, hope you can find encouragement in the things that, that I share this morning as well. I actually get to talk this morning about my very favorite subject to talk about when uh, I'm in a room of hundreds of people that I've never met, uh, and that is the relationship between Christianity and homophobia. Um, so I hope that by the end of my talk, we will all walk away convinced that there is actually no relationship between biblical Christianity and, and what's, you know, what's commonly called homophobia in Western uh, American culture. So this is actually a really important conversation to me personally for a lot of reasons, um, one of which is that it's a very real-time conversation uh, that I get into on a very regular basis in my own ministry. Uh, just a few weeks ago, a 20-year-old woman who's been attending our church, Christ Presbyterian, uh, in Nashville, uh, she's been attending our church for 
quite some time. She kind of slips in, slips out, uh, sits in the balcony in the back. Uh, and um, she came in clearly burdened about something. And um, the way that she introduced the conversation that she wanted to have with me was, you know, by saying, look, I've, I've, I've read the things that you've, you've written uh, about what we're going to talk about. Um, uh, I've heard you teach on these things, and I sense that the culture that has been uh, sort of fostered at the church that you lead and the church that I consider myself to be uh, part of, at least as a regular attender, uh, it makes it safe for me to come in and talk to you about some things that are very personal to me. And that's a great compliment uh, to hear that as a pastor. When, when com- somebody says, you know, I sense that your church is a place where it's safe to have this conversation. And then she proceeded to tell me that she's been wrestling with what feels like incompatibility between her understanding of what the Bible talks about uh, regarding these things and her sexuality. Uh, And then she proceeded to say that she'd been in a relationship with another woman uh, who's about her age, uh, who she considers to be her soulmate, who she considers to be the love of her life. And she said, oh, I want to tell you, it's not about the sex for me as much as it is about the connection. And yet I'm really struggling in my heart, in my conscience. Uh, I have insomnia because of what I sense to be an incompatibility between my sexuality and the Bible. Can we talk about this? And not long after that, a 60-year-old woman uh, who's been a Christian virtually all of her life uh, came in uh, to my office to talk about her daughter, who has a similar story as the woman that I had you know, talked about or, or talked to that I just told you about. And she said, look, I, I'm struggling between... You know, the fact that I know what the Bible says about these things, and I also adore my daughter and her partner, and I don't want to lose my daughter, and I don't want to lose my faith. Is it possible for me to have both? And I think it's probably a safe bet that, you know, to assume that some of you are in an identical situation to one or both of these that I just described to you. And I I assume that there are probably others of you who are asking the question, why is this even a thing? Why do Christians talk about this? I mean, can't Christians just sort of get on board and get into the flow of where 21st century American Western culture is on these things? And so what I hope to do this morning is accomplish two things. One, I hope to make a a strong case for the idea that the Bible is still relevant on these things. And it always has been, and it will never cease to be relevant on these things. It speaks to all of life, including sexuality. And I hope we also leave this place believing and, and, and even enthusiastic about the idea that the Bible actually encourages relationship, dialogue, even friendship across the lines of difference on these matters. And that even for somebody who is in a, a, a situation sexually that is incompatible, incompatible with what the Bible teaches on these things, um, you know, even in that situation, and maybe even especially in that situation, that's a cause for a Christian to pursue 
friendship. You remember the rich ruler? Have you ever read that story? If you're a Bible reader, you may remember the account of the, uh, of the rich ruler you know, coming to Jesus and saying, look, how do I get in on your movement? How do I become part of what your followers are part of? How do I get on board with you? And Jesus says, there's, there's one thing you lack. You know, your money has you around the neck. That was sort of his unique thing. It wasn't sexuality for him. It was, it was an inordinate love for his money. And he said, look, uh, what you need to do is, is renounce your love and affection for your money and come and follow me. And, and for you, what this is going to mean is you're going to have to give it all away because you're the kind of person who will not be able to you know, hold on to your money in the way that your heart is clinging to it and follow me at the same time. And it says that the guy walked away. He said, you know, I, I can't get on board with that. And I won't get on board with that. And it says the guy turned away. He walked the other way. But two interesting realities in that interchange. Number one, it says the man walked away sad. It doesn't say that he walked away feeling pummeled or judged or put in his place. It says he walked away sad. There was something about Jesus that he, that he knew he was going to miss as he walked away. And then the other thing it says is that Jesus looked at him and loved him. He looked at him and loved, and loved him. And so I, I hope that we'll leave today, especially those of us who identify as followers of Jesus Christ, I hope that we will leave today convinced that the more conservative we are about our Bibles, the more we believe that every single word of it is true, the more conservative we are about our Bibles, the more liberal we will be in the way that we love other people, especially and in including those who don't see things the way that we do on these matters. I hope we will walk away believing in our heart of hearts that the more we identify with the narrow path that Jesus Christ laid out for his followers, the more open our embrace will be for others on these things. And so what I'd like to do is turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 12, and that's going to be a scripture that I'm interacting with primarily this morning. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 12. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now, I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, or an idolater, or a slanderer, or a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? I realize it's a really heavy passage, so let's, let's dive into it. There's a question I want to start with. What does the Bible as a whole say about sex? Because I think many people in the culture, especially, and maybe even some people in the church who don't know their Bibles very well, assume this caricature that, 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 that Christians look at sexuality as a very taboo subject. It's sort of a don't go there subject. Um, maybe, maybe the image comes to mind, if you're over the age of 50, of Ward and June Cleaver. You remember that? Leave it to Beaver. Uh, maybe Ward and June Cleaver are your picture of what Christians think about sexuality. Ward and June Cleaver, in this show, Leave it to Beaver, were a, a husband and wife who slept in separate beds. They shared a bedroom, but they slept in separate beds. What, what I'd like to say in passing is that that is just, an un, just as unbiblical of a picture 
of, of biblical you know, idea of marriage and sexuality as any of the other things that I'm going to be talking about today. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says that God invented sex as a positive thing and as a, as a gift that he gave specifically uh, for enjoyment by husbands and wives inside the context of marriage. Genesis chapter 2, God created Adam and Eve. And when God presented Eve to Adam, it says that Adam, you know, essentially composed and, 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 and voiced a poem. She is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. There's this sense of, sense of joy and, 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 and excitement and completion that we, we, we sense from Adam here. And it goes on to say that the husband and wife were naked and not ashamed. And then it says that they came together in a, in a one flesh union. The man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. Prosexuality from the very beginning. In Proverbs, it says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breasts satisfy you with delight. Song of Solomon, which we don't find in children's Bibles very often, but we should. It should be in there, and parents should be talking to their children, and churches should be talking to their children about such things, because guess what? Their peers are, and their screens are. And so when we avoid these subjects with our kids, we default to the culture and, 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 and essentially invite the culture to disciple them on these things. Song of Solomon, eight chapters of erotic bliss. A husband and a wife singing love songs, reciting poetry over, physically enjoying each other's naked bodies. Right there in the Bible, inspired by God. Sorry, teenagers, I know this is incredibly awkward, especially if you're sitting next to your parents right now. 1 Corinthians 7 there's actually a command for husbands and wives to give themselves to one another sexually and frequently because his body belongs to her and her body belongs to him. So any idea that the Bible is non-affirming or taboo or don't go there about sex is an uninformed understanding about what the Bible says. Both the Old and the New Testament are so provocative on this issue, that if we read all the things the Bible says about sex out loud right now, we would all leave blushing on some level. And so what's the issue here? The issue is not so much sex as it is what Paul calls, what the Bible here calls, immorality among the body of Christ, within the church, within the, 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 the family of people who identify as followers of Jesus, there is what Paul calls immorality. The original Greek word here is porneia. We get our word pornography from this. And, and what porneia means is, is really any departure from the biblical ideal and picture of, of, of the context for which God designed sex. And that is within a marriage between one man and one woman, and that marriage is, is a covenant you know, that bonds the, the man and the woman together for life. And, 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 and Paul says here, it, it's reported that there's sexual immorality among you. And then verse 2, you should not be allowing this. You should be mourning over it. You should be sad about it. You know, like contemporary Western America, 
Ancient Corinth was a sexually progressive, promiscuous, adventurous, gratuitous culture. And what Paul is saying is you have become disciples of the culture instead of being disciples of Jesus on these matters. And you should be mourning this. You should be sad about this reality in your midst because you don't even realize it. You are mishandling a treasure. It's like taking fire outside of its context. I mean, think about how we use fire. We can use fire for very positive purposes. We cook. We, we cook bacteria out in order to preserve health. And, 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 and we cook in order to enhance flavor and taste and, and to nourish our bodies and strengthen our bodies for living. Fire provides heat in the, the cold Chicago wintertime. Fire provides ambiance for, for a gathering of friends or for a, a romantic evening um, between two people. But fire, if it's taken outside of its intended context, can, can cause scars and, and can start a wildfire. And so it has to be handled with care. And, and, and what Paul is saying is sex, likewise, has to be handled with care or else it can leave permanent scars. There are guardrails that, 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 that our designer and creator who invented sex has provided in order to protect us from ourselves. And so what about same-sex relationships? So before Nashville, I, I spent several years uh, serving as a, a, a teaching and lead congregational lead pastor at a church called Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, and um, you know, where I worked with my longtime mentor, Tim Keller, who calls this particular subject uh, a defeater, a modern defeater belief that many in especially secular culture have about Christianity. You know, the biblical view on sexuality defeats Christianity in the mind of, and hearts of, of many in modern Western culture. It makes in Christianity implausible. It delegitimizes Christianity. You know, it played out this way. I was part of a, I was part of a panel for a public discussion on sexuality uh, in Nashville in the Vanderbilt area, Vanderbilt University area not too long ago, and a Vanderbilt graduate student uh, directed her question at me and, and, and basically said, why doesn't Christianity just evolve with the culture and progress with the culture on these things? Why can't you Christians give this up? And, and I think the fair question in response to that is, which culture should Christianity evolve with? And who are we to say that modern, contemporary, Western American culture is superior to first century Middle Eastern Jewish culture on these things? You know, every culture has its things that are, that are incredibly important to them, right? But, but your grandparents are mortified about the values of your culture in the same way that you're mortified, you know, because they think your culture is too progressive and too liberal, in the same way that you're mortified about their culture, which in your mind was too conservative 
and too culturally regressive. Who's right and who's the judge? You see, what the Bible does and what makes the Bible so relevant is, number one, it comes from our Creator. But the other thing that makes the Bible relevant is it shows no interest in being relevant. And that's what makes it relevant, because it comes into every culture, and it affirms that which is good and true and right and beautiful, and it critiques and corrects that which is not good and right and beautiful. You know, homoerotic behavior on the same-sex discussion, and this is where... This is where it gets very difficult in those conversations like the ones in my office with the 20-year-old woman and also the 60-year-old mother. There's no wiggle room. There's no wiggle room in the Scripture to think, well, maybe the Bible isn't really saying this. Homoerotic behavior, erotic same-sex relationships are spoken of as far as I can tell, seven times in the Bible. And in each and every instance, there's a fierce warning and zero affirmation. It's a warning sign. It's, it's, it's a siren, the Bible is, about any erotic behavior outside of that protected context where the fire of human sexuality brings life instead of taking life. You know, Romans chapter 1 provides us with a sweeping diagnosis of the human condition, and it talks about sin, and it lists all of these different sinful behaviors that will destroy human beings. And, and there are actually a couple of paragraphs on, on homoerotic behavior between men and men and women and women. But it's very important to recognize that it never singles this out as a special category of sin, like the moral majority movement did. And, and, and we're paying the price. The church is paying the price with a credibility gap with our culture because we've made this its own special category when it's not. You know, homoerotic sin is, is listed right alongside and put on equal footing with other more churchly behaviors like coveting, bitterness, envy, deceit, pride, and gossip. You know, gossip, if you think about it, is its own form of pornography because gossip and pornography, they're, they're both after the same thing, a cheap thrill at somebody else's expense without making any commitment whatsoever to that person. You're turning them into a thing instead of honoring the dignity of their personhood. So if you're a gossip, you're no better than somebody who's hopping into bed with somebody who's not their spouse. You see, we've all got things to, to, to give to God and, and, and plead for his forgiveness and mercy and transformation in our lives. And so the posture has to be one of humility. The posture has to be, hey, we're a lot more the same than we are different in these kinds of conversations. In this text in front of us in 1 Corinthians, you know, Paul puts homosexual practice alongside greed and swindling and drunkenness. Both texts also 
make a, a strong point, and I hope you heard it when I read it the first time. Both texts make a strong point that it is never a Christian's job or right to judge somebody who's not a Christian on this or any other subject. And we also need to understand the very nature of Christianity. And it's this, God will not send people to hell for being gay any more than God will send people to heaven for being straight. This is not the issue. The issue is whether or not you're in Christ. The issue is whether or not you've put your trust in the finished work, the completed work of Jesus Christ on your behalf by faith, which alone gets us in the right with God. And so any homophobic or judgy leaning that we may have, that you or I may have, the message of the Bible for Christians especially is to repent, to turn, to humble yourself. It's right here. I wrote you not to associate with sexually immoral, pe immoral people, with those involved with porneia, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world. Or verse 12, what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is I have nothing to do as a Christian with judging anybody. You know, it says that God alone judges those outside the church. And so here are a few thoughts on a possible way forward. And, and these are specifically things that I've learned in, in conversation and, and, and just through listening uh, to, to gay men, to gay women, to gay teenagers, you know, who don't identify with Jesus Christ and, and, and to those who do identify with Jesus Christ and are living chaste lives because of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, if you are a Christian, start with yourself. And, 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 and understand that there is a much, much bigger issue in the church, which is Paul's focus here, inside Christianity, and that is heterosexual infidelity. Both actual and mental and emotional, that office flirtation, that, 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 that glance when you pass, that glance that, 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 that turns into a, an indulgence when you pass by a Victoria's Secret in the shopping mall. You know, Jesus said, look, if you, if you look on another person lustfully in your heart, it's as if you've already committed adultery with them. It's as if you've already betrayed your one true love. And then there's the pornography epidemic. If statistics are right, roughly 65% of the people in this room have engaged pornography within the last week, men and women and youth all included. It's sort of the silent killer, especially in the church. Did you know that there's more money spent annually on pornography than the big three sports combined, baseball, football, and basketball? I mean, think about it. You know, accumulate all of the Super Bowl ads and the merchandise and the ticket sales and the StubHub you know, inflated prices and the scalping and everything else. You add it all up. It's less than what is spent on porn every year. And yet we never hear it talked about in churches because we don't feel like it's safe to come out of hiding. Because we 
feel that if we are somehow exposed and we take that risk of being honest with two or three people about this, if we are exposed, we will be rejected. And what the church needs to be and to become is a place where we can be exposed and not rejected. No, we will not be rejected. Why? Because Jesus was a physician. He identified himself as a physician who came not for the righteous but for sinners, who came not for the healthy but for the sick. Do you ever think about the fact, if you're a Bible reader, that, that there's not a single instance in which Jesus scolded somebody who had a sexually questionable past or present? Woman at the well, the woman in Luke 7, the, uh, um, you know, the, the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, not a single scolding. Let me just ask for a show of hands, by the way. How many of you know somebody with the story, I fell in love with Jesus Christ because a Christian or a group of Christians scolded me for my ethics? I've been a Christian for over 25 years and an ordained minister for almost 20. I've never, I've never met a single person with that story. But I've met scores and scores of people who said, I fell in love with Jesus because Christians behaved as if it was the kindness of God that leads to repentance, not, the, not my repentance that leads God to be kind. You, know, you think about Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, or I'm sorry, with, with the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. What does he say to her? He says, I do not condemn you. He establishes an environment. He establishes a relationship that says no condemnation. Now leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you, now leave your life of sin. Reverse the order of those two sentences and you lose Christianity and you lose Jesus. You lose the gospel. You lose the environment that says you are safe coming out of the closet, whatever closet you're hiding in. Closet of sexuality, the closet of greed, the closet of fill in the blank. So... I'll finish with a few words. Number one, sympathy. Recognize. Recognize that people do not choose a same-sex orientation any more than people choose a heterosexual orientation. There are neurobiological factors that actually exist. There's never been a gene, as far as I know, scientifically, there's never been a gene discovered that's the gay gene. But, but, but leading studies will tell you that most gay men are left-handed, most gay men have an older brother, most uh, gay men are rarely blood type A, and among gay men in particular, there's a greater incidence of recess negative blood. So if I'm same-sex attracted, these factors doesn't minimize the force of the Bible's teaching. The, 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 the Bible's teaching remains intact it's, my, it's not my feelings that edit and, re, and revise Scripture. It's Scripture that, that, that sort of exercises lordship and health and healing value over, you know, my feelings about this and other things. In the same way that if I have an orientation toward aggression, I'm not off the hook for, for cultivating the fruit of gentleness. If I have an orientation toward lying and deceit, I'm not off the hook for, for cultivating a life of truth, if, if, if I have an orientation toward greed and materialism and retail therapy, I'm not off the hook for cultivating a generous life. 
Because all of these things represent departures from, from sickness to health. All these things represent an office visit to the physician. Again, sexuality is not a unique category. We all have our stuff. So sympathy, one sinner to another. You know, I love what Steve Brown says. A, a Christian who is in their right mind understands themselves to be a beggar whose job it is to tell other beggars where to find the bread. And then the second sort of phrase is the combination of truth and grace. This was the genius of Jesus, his ability to profoundly disagree and deeply love at the same time. He flexed the muscles of conviction and compassion simultaneously. And part of that, part of the outcome of that was people walked away wishing it could be true. And, and, and many of them walk away discovering that it was true. Truth and grace combined. Because truth without grace makes you a bully. An inaccessible bully. Grace without truth makes you a codependent enabler. Neither is healthy. Neither is life-giving. Put them both together, and you're walking right behind Jesus. The third would be cultivating love inside the church. So Wesley Hill is, is a lead voice. He, he lives with same-sex attraction. He's, a, he's a, a college professor who lives with same-sex attraction. He's written books on his own experience. One is called Spiritual Friendship. Another is called Washed and Waiting. Highly recommend both of those books. But what Wesley Hill says in his writing is, the church of Jesus Christ, my fellow Christians are my significant other. You know, my message to the church is the same thing, you know, that, that Jesus said. You are my mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. You are my bride. Those who hear the will of God and align their lives to it. That's what the church is meant to be, a family of surrogates where nobody is alone because it's not good for anybody to be alone. There was another woman, who lived, a Christian woman living with same-sex attraction who um, you know, was in a in social circle that I was part of. And, and she told a story about how some friends in her church had her over to a meal and said, look, we know because of your orientation and because of your belief in, in, in the, the, the whole of Scripture, that, that, that you may live the rest of your life as a single woman. And, and, and we want to tell you that, and this is totally up to you to decide, but we want to tell you there's a room in our house and it is yours for the rest of your life if you want it. That's what the church is meant to be. And part of this means we need to, we need to understand that this, this, this notion that the nuclear family is an ideal. And, 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 and somehow if you're not coupled with somebody, somehow if you're not kind of husband, wife, two or three kids, then you're missing out on the full picture of Christianity. That is patently unbiblical. That is Western idolatry being being injected into the life of the church. 
There is no family-centered church that Jesus would approve unless we see the church as the family. Because the family-centered church, by design, excludes those who don't fit the ideal. And it cultivates loneliness. And any church that cultivates loneliness and is of invisibility for anyone ceases to be a faithful church. We need to work hard in our churches, especially our Western American churches, to ensure that divorcees, that 45-year-old single men and women, that widowers and widows, that those living lonely inside a hard marriage do not experience isolation and loneliness inside the church of Jesus Christ. And then there is the call to love outside the church. Some examples from, from recent history. C. Everett Koop, who was Surgeon General, uh, appointed by Reagan as a Christian, uh, you know, was, was appointed and, and confirmed into the, the position of Surgeon General of the United States. And it was on his watch that, that this little virus known as HIV was discovered. And, and, and during his tenure, it was thought that only gay men could contract HIV AIDS. And what Coop did was he invested the force of his position and the resources of his position into fighting the AIDS virus on, on behalf of the flourishing of all of these gay men who are being destroyed by this virus and by this illness, by this disease. You know, Kevin Palau is another one. Kevin is a friend of mine. Kevin uh, is from Portland, and he mobilized uh, groups of Christian churches in Portland to approach the openly gay mayor, Sam Adams, and essentially said this, we have free labor for you. Can we work together, the church and the government, regardless of whatever differences we may have about sexuality, can we work together, the church and the government, to, to address the situation of Portland's poor and those living on the margins. And, and they entered into a partnership. And, and the mayor, Sam Adams, said, I would do this a million times over again. This has been one of the most life-giving experiences for me as, as a person in public office. And my whole perspective on Christians has changed. Or Shane Windemeyer, are you familiar with the Huffington Post article that, that, that was written <clears throat> A few years. I write about this in my first book, Jesus Outside the Lines. It's in the intro. Shane Windemeyer uh, is a gay activist uh, who, who publicly protested Chick-fil-A and, and led you know, scores of gay men and women to protest and boycott Chick-fil-A. You may remember this happened years ago. Chick-fil-A is a Christian-owned organization, President Dan Cathy, because he was asked you know, by a reporter in front of a microphone, you know, what's your definition of marriage? And he, he gave the biblical definition and got sort of boycotted. And what Dan Cathy did was he quietly reached out to Shane, Shane Windemeyer for friendship, not to lecture him, not to put him in his place, not to make an argument, but to say, hey, I want to listen. I want to know what it's like to be, I want to know what it's like to, to experience Christians as a gay person. And that began a friendship that eventually led Shane Windemeyer to, to write an essay in the Huffington Post called Coming Out as a Friend of Dan Cathy and Chick-fil-A. And that was a great risk for Shane Windemeyer to do that as a gay activist in his own community, but he did it because somebody expressed what true Christian friendship is. See, it's not in spite of our biblical convictions, but it's because of our biblical convictions that we are to love, listen to, 
and serve across the lines of difference. And I love what Madeline Lingle said. We draw people to Christ not by telling them how right we are and how wrong they are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they can't help but ask what the source of that light is. And then finally, and all of us experience this, outside of marriage, inside of marriage, with sex in our lives, without sex in our lives, we all experience the human condition of loneliness. And the message of that, whatever our situation is, the message there is that Jesus identifies with it. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was put to death outside of the city on a trash heap, and all of his closest friends abandoned him, it says. Jesus was never married. Jesus never had intercourse. Do you think Jesus doesn't understand your situation? Neither did the Apostle Paul. Isn't that interesting that the foremost teachers in the Bible on sex and marriage both were single? Singleness is not a death sentence. And I, I think that's what the family-centered church, it does harm to that truth. Singleness is not a death sentence. Paul said it's actually far better to be as I am because it frees you up to give yourself fully to the Lord's concerns. Our identity especially in Christ, is not in our marital status, but in our redemptive status. Jesus promises to satisfy the longing. Whether we are temporarily single, whether we are permanently single, whether we are lonely outside marriage, whether we are lonely inside marriage, Jesus has given us a home, and it's called the church, and it's a family of surrogates these are my mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and husbands and wives. And what Jesus has given us, you know, this being Communion Sunday for Christ Community Church, what he's given us is a table. And what the Lord's Supper is, really, when push comes to shove, this is what it is. It's a rehearsal dinner in preparation for what the Bible calls the wedding feast of the Lamb, where Jesus and his bride, the church, will eat together and, and inaugurate and consummate an eternity of intimacy that will blow away any experience of intimacy that we might be able to enjoy now. And so it turns out that the Song of Solomon is a story of intimate rapture, but it's also a parable that reminds us, and I quote from the Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, these are heavy, weighty things, but I, I thank you, Lord, that you don't shy away from heavy and weighty things. I thank you that you speak into these and all the other areas of our lives with strength, flexing both the muscles of conviction and compassion, not because you don't love us, but because you do love us. Teach us how to handle things like fire and things like our mouths and our speech and things like sex in life-giving, healthy ways. In your name we pray. Amen.